I'm sure that you have probably seen some of the controversy uh, about the cost of the inauguration that's coming up. And uh, I'm not uh, willing to make any comment on that. The controversy basically is this, however, that uh, with the estimates going somewhere around $150 million and that being almost four times what previous inauguration uh, costs, there are those that are saying that's way too much. We're in bad economic times. We ought not to be spending that kind of money. In fact, the argument uh, is that money could be used for other things. And what's the answer to it? Well, the answer from those who are defending it is this one is so historic, so special, that it's worth it. I want us to look and see that although it's on a much different issue, that Jesus uses a similar argument when he responds to what's going on here. Let's take a look at uh, this passage in Mark 14. First of all, to understand this, uh, what I've called in the outline an extravagant action. I don't think anyone would argue that that's what it was in terms of where it is. Uh, Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, Bethany was a small town you've heard in in Mark. We've talked about it in various places in the Gospels. (coughs) What we see is that Jesus, often when he is doing something in Jerusalem, will stay in Bethany. Now, where does he stay? Typically, he would stay with his friends. Lazarus and Mary and Martha, who had a home there in Bethany. And then he would walk into Jerusalem, do his teaching, do whatever he was doing, and then go back out to Bethany to spend the night there. They were close friends of his. Most Bible-believing commentators, and I have every reason to agree with this as well, believe that this account is parallel with the account in John 12. And in John 12, it names who this woman was. It was actually Mary, Lazarus' sister. And I I think there's every indication that uh, that was the case here. I don't know any reason to doubt that was the case. Now, it's a dinner given in Jesus' honor, which wouldn't have been unusual, but it wasn't at Lazarus' house. Now, they might have been celebrating uh, that Lazarus was raised from the dead, but it wasn't at his house. It was at the home of one named, that they called at least, Simon the leper. Now, maybe the better term for him would be Simon the former leper, because if he were a leper... He wouldn't be hosting parties. Or let's put it this way. If he hosted a party, nobody would come. Because that completely cut you off 
from any kind of social activity. And so he evidently had been healed of leprosy. They still knew him because of that big fact about his life that he had had leprosy. And on this, we don't know that this is the case, but I would not be surprised to find out that a reason he was hosting a dinner in honor of Jesus was because Jesus had actually healed him of leprosy. It doesn't say that. That would be uh, maybe sanctified speculation. And it doesn't matter to uh, the account one way or the other. But I think it's quite possible. There's one other tradition, and that's all it is. Not from the scripture, but uh, in tradition, some say that Simon the leper was actually the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha living in the same town. Could be, once again, it doesn't matter to our account. We don't have any proof of it, but it's an interesting tradition. Now, take a look at the action itself. Again, verse 3. He was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. That would be how they would be sitting around eating dinner. (coughs) A woman, let's say Mary, Lazarus' sister, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So she takes this jar of very expensive perfume perfume, pure nard. That was a a perfume that uh, is an oil that was an extract of a root from the east, probably India. So you can see why this would be very expensive, because it was imported. It wasn't just a a local thing that anybody could grow and, and make up. Mark tells us that it was worth around 300 denarii doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but we do know that in that day, one denarii was about a day's wages, a little more than a day's wages. So you figure it out. Whatever your year's uh, wages, because 300, if each, each one of those is a little more than a day's wages, makes it about a year's wages right there. So you can see this is a very... Uh, expensive. It's an enormous amount of money. Now, according to the other accounts, uh, we, we hear them start to complain, the other disciples, but according to the other accounts, it was actually Judas that did the calculations. Now, what does that tell you? He's the one that started these stirrings. He's the keeper of the money bag. And other accounts tell us that he was already helping himself to that bag of money that was used just for the expenses of Jesus and the disciples. So money was his motivator. We know that from what he was about to do as well. He calculates uh, the value of what had just been poured on Jesus' head. And he says, what a waste. He says, we could have, and other disciples are agreeing, we could have given that to the poor. Now, 
other accounts say, it wasn't so much that Judas was concerned for the poor, but his concern was for the amount of money. So there's no indication that had she come and said, I want to give this for your support or whatever, that they would have at that point said, okay, we will give this away to the poor. In fact, I'm, I feel pretty certain, knowing Judah's character, that he would have objected to that uh, every bit as uh, strenuously. So this, uh, this jar of nard, Mary's possession, Maybe Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' possession because it was not unusual for that to be passed down from generation to generation. It was sometimes used for embalming. And maybe they would use a little bit of it and pass the rest on. But one reason that they would keep it in the family was because of its value. And if it ever came down to Uh, being in such dire straits financially, the thought was you could sell that and then you would be okay because you had just achieved a year's wages there. So Mary takes the most valuable thing she has and she gives it to Jesus. Now, again... The reaction of the others, verse 4 and 5. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. What were they saying? It's wasteful. That's that much. Think how many people that could have helped, is what they were saying. Now again, it's pretty questionable whether or not they would have ever used it for that. But when you think about it, if you want to make an argument for stewardship, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, can't you see a committee sitting down and saying, here's all this money. What do we do with it? Let's be practical with it. And so they rebuked her. But Jesus doesn't agree with them. Look at his declaration. I think it's rather surprising. And I have to admit, many times I read over this passage and was again surprised by what he said. Verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor uh, you will have always with you, always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, (coughs) wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, there's two aspects here. He makes a statement, the poor will always be with you. Now, that, to me, is surprising, coming from the one 
who has who who showed that he cared more about the poor than anyone before and anyone since. Jesus cared for the poor, and yet he said, "Look, you can take care of them anytime. They're always going to be here." That's one aspect. We'll address that in a minute. And then he says, she has done a beautiful thing. That's what I want us to focus on. How is that a beautiful thing? Why is this not an awful statement by Jesus? How could that seemingly wasteful act be a beautiful thing? That's where we fit into our worship series. We began with the word of God. Last week we looked at the precious gift of the sacraments. And today we see Jesus' view of what a priority it is. He describes it. The description is a beautiful thing. Now here's the issue. Jesus had just said that the poor you'll always have with you and you won't always have me. Now he, uh, what's he saying there? Well, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, don't worry about the poor. He's not saying they're unimportant. He's not saying, don't take care of the poor. Or that it's wrong to take care of the poor. But what he is saying, in saying what he did, he is clearly putting himself above the needs of humanity. Now stay with me, because this is a real key for us to understand this, and I think understand the priority of worship. Jesus puts himself in a completely different category. Now, that's a bad thing to do. It's a selfish thing to do. It's an arrogant thing to do. It is a crazy thing to say. There is only one thing that makes it not arrogant and not crazy and not selfish, and that is if he is really God in the flesh. And that's the difference here. You see, if any of us said that, putting ourselves above the needs of humanity, It would be arrogant, it would be crazy, it would be completely wrong, self-centered. But if God says that, it is right. It's not crazy. It is far from arrogant. It is the truth. So because of who he is. You see what he's saying? The only way one can justify giving the thing of greatest value and it being a beautiful thing is if Jesus is really the Lord of the universe about to give his life for Mary. If he is that, not only 
is giving him the most valuable thing and acceptable thing to do, it is a beautiful thing to do. It is beautiful worship. Mary got it. She, of all these people here, understood. That's the test, though, isn't it? Let me show you one more thing that made it beautiful, I I think. And that's why I said we needed to read all kind of three sections of this passage, and and that is the stark contrast of what was going on around that with this beautiful act of worship. If you look at verses 1 and 2, and then 10 and 11, I'm not going to read them again. But what you have there is uh, the, the beginning of uh, this account has this plot of the scribes and Pharisees, and it ends with the betrayal of Judas. Judas. And sandwiched in between that is this beautiful act. So you have this darkness surrounding this beautiful thing, this beautiful act of devotion and worship that takes place. And and, and it's light and it's contrasted with darkness all around it. And I think that just made it stand out all the more. You see, Jesus knew the heart of the scribes and Pharisees. He knew the heart of... Judas, he knew the heart of the disciples that were so easily swayed by Judas and his thinking. And he also knew the heart of Mary, who of all of those groups seemed to be the one to get it. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't because he demanded it. It was because she knew his love for her and responded in love and devotion to him. Now there's something to we need to pull a take from this and that is that biblical worship will be misunderstood by those with other priorities. And and that's still the case today. Um, Think about what we do on Sunday. You got up early this morning. Because of that, I had to get up even earlier than you. If your neighborhood was anything like I, I came here, it was still dark. I didn't see any lights on in my neighborhood. And I'm sure you drove by a lot of homes where people on this dreary day, I asked Ralph at one point, I said, is it going to get light today? You know, on this dreary day where, where, you know, they're at home sipping a cup of coffee saying, oh, what a good day to stay inside, isn't it? There's people all over Irmo and Lexington and all over the place that are saying that. You know what? They got a point there. And then we come here and we sing as a group. Now, who does that? There's no place. 
people my age do that unless you go to a ball game and you sing the national anthem. That's about it. We come here. We get a book. We sing some new, some very old songs together. Whether we can sing or not, we do that. It is music, often unlike music, that we listen to. Now, there's a reason for that. Because it's about God. And then we read an ancient book. And then someone gets up and speaks to you about what's in that ancient book. It sounds strange when I put it that way, doesn't it? And so is it any wonder that people who don't know God don't get it? Don't understand what would draw us here? And then for another group of people to come in in another hour or so? People without God, will not understand biblical worship. The what we do or the why we do it. So let's get back to the test of what we see here, though. Are you tempted to still think, yeah, but it it was kind of a waste? You know what? This week I had to get real honest and ask myself that question. I have read this passage many times. And I'll tell you, I think, in all honesty, I would have been one of those that would have said that very thing. That in this context, in that day, I probably would have said, yeah, that is a waste. And whether or not I joined in with that fake reason for the poor, I probably would have thought of a lot of good other, other good uses for the money rather than it being poured over his head and into a puddle on the ground. It's the Lord of the universe alone who is worthy of our unrestrained devotion and worship. Now, what's it mean to us? I want to ask you, and I, I've asked myself, you know, that's one of the hard things about being a pastor. You've you got to ask yourself all these questions you're asking other people, and then you've got to live with that all week long. Are you holding back in your worship? Where does worship fit in to your life, or is that what you do? You just work it in where it fits in. Do you worship when it's convenient, when it fits into your schedule, if there aren't other conflicts, if you don't have company on Sunday? You know, there was a time when believers missed worship. They only did so because they were extremely ill or some other reason. Now, I regularly hear people say, uh, you know, we were just really tired. Or we had a really busy Saturday. Or we had company. I have to tell you, in our family, that was never an option. 
and raising our children. And you say, of course not, because you're the pastor. You have to be here. Well, I do. But part of the reason I'm a pastor is because I really, really believe this. And so if people were in our home on Saturday night, they knew that we were going to get up and go to church, and they would go to church with us, or they stay at home. But their presence wasn't going to stop us from going to church. And being tired is no reason to miss worship any more than you skip work or you skip school. Parents don't allow that just because their kids wake up tired. They'd never go to school, would they? Huh? I have four kids. I know how that is. So that wasn't an acceptable excuse. We've gone to church the day after each of our children's wedding. I even preached the morning after one of our kids got married. Because we really believe, and and our kids grew up hearing every single Sunday. That's what we do on Sunday. When we're on vacation, it doesn't matter. We're on vacation wherever we are. That's what this family does on Sunday. And my kids, three of them grown now, still do that. They still believe it. There's no guarantee that's going to happen, but I'm, I'm thankful that they do believe that. And you know what? None of them are pastors. I want to make it real easy for us. What reasons should I not go to church? There is one reason. <laughs> if you were providentially hindered. <laughs> now, what's that mean? God is in control. Sometimes, in his providence, he hinders you from coming to church. It might be an illness where you really can't come to church. Or some other kind of infirmity. Or some other circumstances where God places it there. When that's the case, if you were providentially hindered, you shouldn't be in church. But he's the only one you need to be concerned about. It's not me. It's not the elders. It's not people here. It's not your own guilt. You just need to ask yourself, have I been providentially hindered today? And if so, then I stay away. If I'm not providentially hindered, then... Jesus wants me to worship him with his people today. If you let the world determine your church going, you will be in the category of those who thought they were being practical by saying, don't waste your time. Don't waste coming here early, coming to 11 o'clock. That's a waste. Don't do that. You've got other things to do. Our world will tell you it's okay. You go to church enough. Your sports teams will tell you it's okay. We're Christians too. We don't go, need to go to church. You, you know, we need you here. I know. I've been there. The only question is, what would be Jesus' 
response to that lackadaisical view of worship. Here's the key, though. Mary didn't do this because someone had made her feel guilty. And I'm not either. That's not profitable. That's not what I'm after here. She honored her Lord in worship because she was so loved by him. And in return, she loved him back. She wanted to do it. She didn't begrudge it when she poured out a a year's worth of wages over him and worshiped him. And Jesus received that worship. And he said, she gets it. Don't rebuke her. And you know what? She didn't care who saw it. She didn't care what anyone was saying or what their judgments were about her. All she cared about was showing her worship to Jesus. She would worship. You know, this week, we all watched the the drama, really after the fact, of the U.S. Air flight, three-minute flight. I was actually watching it when I was at the the, the gym, and I was uh, watching it on the monitor there. And I got to thinking, you know, I'll bet those people in those three minutes, when they heard the boom and they saw the smoke and the, the pilot said, prepare for a rough landing, you know, how calm they are and everything. I imagine that there were any number of them that were saying, I should have listened to the flight attendant when she said what to do if we go down in water. That's what I would have been thinking. Because I'm always there with my head in the book. I want to look cool. I don't want to look like I, you know, I'm worried about what's going on. But I'll bet as they were heading down, they didn't care about being cool. They wished they had listened. They wished. They had responded. I have to wonder about these disciples who were rebuked. After they rebuked Mary, they were rebuked by Jesus. If a very short time later when they saw him dying for them on the cross, if they said, and they thought, oh, I wish, I had shown my love for him like she did. I get it. Oh, how I wish I had. It's not too late for us. It is not too late. May God give us a heart for worship that is unrestrained by the things of this world. Let's bow together. Lord, will you speak to our hearts? I'm just not at all interested in anyone walking out of here feeling guilty because of something I've said. 
but we do need to hear from you. And so, Lord, help us to know that priority of worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.